where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Humour and Humanity. And today's theme is the cosmos. Yep, it's our first episode of 2024, and we thought we'd tackle the small themes first. Happy New Year, by the way. I don't know, are we still allowed to say that? It's a bit late in January, but fuck it. It's our first one back of the year. So happy 2024. Here at Namaste Motherfuckers, we all hope it is a marvellous one, or at the very least a bit better than 2023, for me at least. And it is season six. Can you believe we are in season six already? It seems like just yesterday that producer Mike and I started working together and we have yet to have our first creative difference. I think that's the case. Mike may interject here. It's the best work marriage ever and here's to many, many more happy years ahead. So whether you're new to Namaste motherfuckers or you've been with us from the get-go or anything in between, we are delighted you are here with us. Thank you for finding us and we've got some incredible guests coming your way over the next few weeks in this series. So keep coming back, it is worth it. See, I didn't even ask you to rate and review us. I didn't even mention the words rate and review. Right, the cosmos. The highest energy cosmic ray ever detected is called the oh my god particle. The cosmic calendar is based on an idea popularised by Carl Sagan and it shows the history of the universe condensed to just one year with modern humans appearing at 23 hours and 52 minutes, so eight minutes before midnight on the last day. It was also Carl Sagan who said, every one of us is, in the cosmic perspective, precious. If a human disagrees with you, let him live. In a hundred billion galaxies, you will not find another. And from the existential to something a little less erudite, to help speed up the solving time for Rubik's cubes, lubricants can be used to grease the joints. These include cubicle lubicle, cosmic lube, and Lubick's Cube. There we are. Yes, sorry. How's she doing? No, good. Very good. Very good. How are you doing? That's today's guest, Robin Ince. Some of the cosmic dust floating around the sun is 7 billion years old, even though our solar system is only 4.5 billion years old. Riddle me that. And finally, in 1922, Lise Meitner, the future co-discoverer of nuclear fission, gave her inaugural lecture at the University of Berlin. The title, The Significance of Radioactivity for Cosmic Processes, was misreported in the local press, where they, instead of cosmic, said cosmetic. So her lecture was renamed The Significance of Radioactivity for Cosmetic Processes. Sexist much? Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so when you're yawning, the the tedium of it, I apologise for. (laughs) Robin Ince is a self-described comedian, writer, broadcaster, human and popularizer of scientific ideas. He is probably best known as the co-host of the award-winning BBC Radio 4 series, The Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox. He also co-hosts the podcast Book Shambles with Josie Long and An Uncanny Hour and Science Shambles with Dr Helen Zersky. 
the three of them together are part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. His book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, was described by Chortle as one of the best books ever written about what it means to be a comedian. He also wrote the book, The Bad Book Club, and has edited and written short stories for two volumes of dead, funny, horror stories by comedians, as well as writing and presenting documentaries about, among other things, the history of self-help, comedians and melancholy, and Dr. Seuss. As a stand-up, he has toured the world, winning awards along the way. The Guardian wrote that when someone writes a history of modern comedy, they should make room for Robin Ince. Robin and I talked about books, autism, dads, counterculture, failure, perfectionism, anxiety, therapy, money, freedom, synchronicity, science, comedy and happiness. But I started by asking him what he's reading at the moment. What am I reading at the moment? I'm re- I'm reading an enormous number of books about autism and neurodiversity and uh, um, what's it called? My body, uh, what's it called? Not my body hides your pain, uh, but it's it's about. I've been reading this book, which I just literally found on a on a railway bookshelf. You know, when they have just books that people have just left there, and it's it's about this woman talking about how we physically some you know the pain that people go through and the experience they go for through and how it gets sometimes right we have represented in the, through through the body as well she herself has experienced abuse and stuff like that so I've, I've been reading that and i've just started reading angel at my table by janet frame because that's I've never an amazing book read that and i and i i was i was told off by a friend yesterday that i'd not read it yes well like, good i don't need to tell you off for not reading it do you ever think it's it's a sort of realization isn't it you and i are virtually exactly the same age and it's a sort of realization, all those books we won't get to read, even if we read solidly seven a day. But I, I don't mind because I, I had that when, when my, my, my dad died a few months ago and I was thinking of some things. First thing I thought of was, did he get to the end of that Australian TV series he was watching that was set <laughs> after the Second World War? Not Neighbours. And then that got me to thinking about the the books that were by his chair and some people find that sad, the unfinished book, because someone was telling me the other day that they, um, when I think it was their mother died, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, no, actually, it wasn't even that. It, it was the, the woman who had owned the house that she had bought and she would bought the house with all the books were still there. And she'd found the book with a bookmark in and uh, she thought, oh, this woman didn't finish this book. And she felt she had to finish the book for the woman who died. But she she was. Uh, which I thought was really lovely. It's like there are ghosts and that ghost looked fondly on and said, thank you. I hope it was a book that ended well as well, because some books get worse as you go. And what a bloody damp squib that would be. Yeah. Well, don't Thomas Hardy and Emil Zola. You keep away from them. Um, But yeah, I I think you could die mid sentence with Thomas Hardy, couldn't you? Long old sentences. He does Germanically long. Yeah, do you know what? I've not read any for age. I read James O'Brien's book recently, the one about the people who kind of screwed up uh, everything that's happened, you know, government and, and and beyond. And I said to him, your book, uh, I had to cheer myself up by reading Tess the Durbervilles because it's like, <laughs> oh, God, it's just so. Um... But yeah, I think unfinished books, I think it's an I used to feel like that. I'd look at the bookshelves and the stacks of books around me and I'd go, I won't have time for all of these. But now I think, well, that's the absolute joy of going that, you know, to die halfway through a book means that you're still engaged with the world. That's a lovely way to look at it. 
they um because your dad got you into into books didn't he I, I've heard you talk about your dad's you traipsing around book fairs with your dad so you were you were in a bookish family from the get-go yeah it was uh um and and then after we all left home I didn't realize quite how much he'd been splashing out and all manner of uh uh, bookish knickknacks and other books as well. I mean, like, so that was because he would, he retired quite early. Um, he, he retired again. It's one of those bits where you get the imprint of someone left behind. The reason that he retired when he, when he could at the age of 60 was because he found that in the business he worked in, you couldn't trust someone on their word. And uh, he felt that was a very important part. And he wanted what business to was he in? He uh, it was publishing. It was. It was actually. If you've ever, have you ever um, uh, read the uh, uh, the ABC Murders or seen one of the adaptations? Yes, of course. Uh, Who can have avoided ABC such Travel things? Guides? That's ah, what he worked in. So, uh, yeah, like the earlier Doctor Herb Lester, and then he decided what that it didn't suit his his. It wasn't. It wasn't an ethical business. That it was a purposeless ethical void. Well, it was just that he felt that if you said you were going to do something, and he always was that, he always did that. It's like when he found out that the cleaners weren't getting on the bonus system, uh, he went straight to the boss and said, why aren't the cleaners on the bonus system? Uh, and they said, because they're just cleaners. And he said, but cleaners are a part of, you know, when you go into your office and it's clean in the morning, that's a really important part of yeah, the Maslow's of hierarchy day. of needs, environment. Yeah, so he thought. So you wouldn't have thought of him as a, you know, uh, in in one way he wasn't left wing at all, uh, though he did start reading the Guardian at the age of eighty eight. Um, I'm loving but, your dad. I wish he'd hung on to become the next prime minister. I reckon he could have sorted a few things out. Well, he was absolutely um, the last few years of his life. He could not understand. He he really. In fact, my sister, my oldest sister, and I went when when he was dying. We said it, one, it was the right time. I think he was bored. I think he had become bored. And I think he really could not understand the world as it was because he, I, I suppose, you know, that post-war thing where you imagine progress and you do actually see that progress and you see changes. And then you start to see all those people who are the figureheads of the government and, you know, the, the, the home secretary, all those people. And you just go, how have these people who have no curiosity, no empathy, no delight in the world, only delight in money and power. How do they? And, and I think, yeah, they, he found that uh, quite exhausting and strange. Well, I think as people 30 years younger than him, we're finding it quite exhausting and strange, aren't we? God knows what we're leaving for our kids to inherit at this point. I, I really hope they're, I hope it's because, I don't know, it's must, it must twist again, mustn't it, in a more positive direction? Can I, I appreciate the climate's a bit of a fucker. It's hard to turn that one around. But surely there must be some elements of society and kindness and goodness that are going to take precedence again. Yeah, I, I th and I also think there are lots of great voices. There are lots of, 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 of people who look with utter disdain at the, you know, it's 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 like with the, you know, I'm a celebrity thing, you know, the, how disgusting it is to place someone on the far right into this uh, fun humanizing show, and you know, in the same with Matt Hancock, and the same with, you know, I, I know about TV people go, oh, wouldn't it be great when we Boris Johnson does a kind of road trip thing, and you just go, yeah, so I think there's lots of other people who. Uh, and it's good for the counterculture, you know, counterculture thrives on these things. It's the bit where people find out where they belong. And when you find the right people, like, you know, saying that I was just talking to Josie long beforehand, you know, Josie and me have been friends since she was a teenager. And, and it's, you know, we're united on lots of different things creatively and ethically.
and there's lots of I know I'm always meeting the audience there's always lovely people of lots of ages some of them are in their 90s and sometimes I've got 14 year olds in there and and they're all interesting and exciting people who are uh, really want the world to be a better and more inclusive place do you think it, it sounds like again I don't want to attribute the things I believe onto you as given we've never even met in the flesh but I do go around with the genuine worldview that most people are fantastic and that you'll end up I was in Margate on Sunday just wandering around with the dog in the rain and I reckon I had 20 different fantastic conversations with strangers in the space of those two hours things that every conversation of which I'm so pleased I had and life I think throws you those things and I think most people are fantastic sadly the voices have gone to the minority who are wankers at the moment it seems in terms of certainly politics and leaders in many countries but what's what's your view on sort of the big question of is humanity good or evil well I think the the, the potential is that a lot of people uh they i think it's very easy to thoughtlessly believe in cruelties which if you have a chance to examine them you will throw away it's a bit like you know when someone goes you can't say anything nowadays can you you can't say anything nowadays and you go what would you like to say mm. and then they go oh because either they realize that you can say most things or they realize that what they want to say is something that's really reprehensible and shows what a bigot they are so you know and i think there's what we really lack in the world of 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 tv and and the media is asking people why they believe what they believe so on question time i always get frustrated by someone will say something and then it just moves on and and no one says sorry can you tell me why you believe that What, what why have you said that because then that's when it gets difficult and i think you know we're naturally in a profession and in a world you know where we are all the time going, why is that? Why is this? Why is that? Why is that going on? And and so I think, you know, we, we, we've we got a, an exciting place to be as as any, any you know, whether we're communicating to 40 people, whether we're communicating to a few hundred, whatever it is, we have that opportunity to throw out all the, all these kind of whys towards them. So I, I think it's like Howard Zinn, the great anarchist historian, he used to say, if the American people knew what had been done in their name, they would be, you know, in revolt. And and I think if there was a democracy in our media, which there isn't, of course, it's a small number of of of, of, of greedy, duplicitous, non-domicile uh, kind of uh, sociopaths, I think. Um, but if if we had the real broad media, and we really did see a true representation of all of the possibilities of the world, I think you're right. I think most people, or certainly, I have, a, I reckon though, maybe twenty five percent of people are Nazis. Wow, that's quite. That goes against uh, my theory that you're someone who genuinely believes in humanity. So the old oh one no, in I four. do. It's a, it's a minority, but I 20, you know one I in four. So I'm be... sitting on the tube. One in four people on the tube. When I go into town in a minute to the BBC audio Christmas party, one in four people around me will be Nazis. Yeah, genetic Nazis though. Really? No, well, I do fault, think it? that. Yeah, when you look at who turns and who's willing to turn and who's willing to turn a blind eye, which is the same as turning, isn't it? So if I'm standing at the gates of Auschwitz, didn't notice what was happening behind me. You're making a decision, aren't you, to not to not speak out? And yeah, you do. Well, it, that must be the case because otherwise, what happened would never have happened, would it? That's for Victor Frankel. Do you know Victor Frankel? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I picked up a book of I think he did a series of lectures about a year after he came out of the, the death camp. And um, and he was one of the few Jewish people who went back to Vienna because most of the ones who'd come from Vienna went not going back there. You know, they moved to other places, but he moved back to where he'd been before all of that happened. 
And he said on an almost daily basis, he'd meet people who went, oh, Victor, I'm so sorry. We have no idea what was going on. And he said, and I genuinely believe they had no idea what was going on. But I also think they had to put in a lot of effort to make sure that they didn't know what was going that's on. That's incredibly and I, well and I think put. that's, a you know, really that way of thinking is. Uh, and also, and the problem is the moment you want to engage and the moment you want to try and make things better or help people, you know, there'll always be a shortfall. You know that. It is my, you know, you know, if you do, if you if you try and do something for, some, I don't know, some charity or whatever, and, you, and it's mentioned on social media, and then uh, people go, oh, it's very interesting uh, that you're doing um, that charity for old people, but I see that you're not doing anything uh, for this uh, charity uh, for English homeless soldiers or whatever it is, right? Um, then you say to them, what are you doing? Mm. And more often than not, they're doing nothing. But by doing nothing. It's very because you you know what's the criticism? You failed. Well, I haven't failed because I haven't done anything. Look how high my horse is. My horse gets higher and higher the less that I do, and I can look down at everyone who's doing something because an action can be criticised. Yeah, I love the um. You, I'm sure you've been to Highgate Cemetery, and I came across Malcolm McLaren's death mask there, and I don't know if you've seen it, but what he's got on his uh, tombstone under his death mask is better a spectacular failure than a benign success. And I think that sums it up rather well. Well, that's that. Yeah, I totally. I was watching that one of the guys who did the Turner Prize. I was I was down in Eastbourne, and uh, oh god, what's his name? I'll, I'll put it down somewhere. But he, um, so he didn't win. Uh, but he did. The, his his was a film about lots of different music and poetry that had been created. Got together a small group of people, and they talked about their raft, what they needed to stay afloat in the world and keep moving forward. Um, at one point in the film about how they made it, he's asking people what they can now jettison from their raft. And someone says perfectionism. And and I always go back to one of my favourite things in the whole world is Patti Smith singing A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall at the Nobel uh, Prize for, for Bob Dylan and getting the line wrong twice and stopping and saying, I'm sorry, I'm very nervous. And that to me is far more beautiful. Anyone who then goes, it's not, I, I remember getting annoyed one year at Glastonbury where people go, ah, oh, I saw Chris Christopherson. Oh, he didn't sing very well, did he? Oh, Chris, Chris. And you go, Chris Christopherson's 85 years old. Chris Christopherson is Chris Christopherson. If you want to hear Chris Christopherson singing the songs perfectly, they've been placed on vinyl and CD and on some kind of cloud. If you want to see someone who carries with them an incredible history, whose voice may not be perfect anymore, but is still standing before you, that's a different story to having a perfect voice so all those people can go fuck themselves <laughs> exactly. to make that Say clear. what you really I, think robin stop sitting on the fucking fence all through this i uh, <laughs> i love it's, it's that bit of you know it's like when you listen to old you know when, when johnny cash was doing those last few albums with rick rubin those american recordings and you hear in his voice you hear the age in his voice and you hear the experience in his voice and you know uh a, a, a bum note is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter. Not after, I don't think there are many bum notes because I think Rick Rubin and him work pretty well together. Uh, but that's that's part of. I think it was uh, John. No, uh, Philip Glass said, uh, "Don't do what you know how to do because if you do what you know how to do, then you'll never surprise yourself." And I yeah. think that's part of, of of the joy of it, which is I would much rather watch something that was imperfect with a huge amount of passion like that Malcolm you know you saying the Malcolm McLaren thing I would much rather watch that than watch it's uh, there was a line that I quoted in in the Mellon 
show that I did in Edinburgh, which started with me punching a melon until it exploded. Um, that Andy Warhol said, I don't really like watching professional entertainers because I know they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? And I think um, if you look at the whole idea of sort of what it is to what it is to be perfect oliver berkman whose stuff i really like i don't know if you've read any of his books yeah, yeah. And he said to, i had him on the podcast he was my first ever guest a couple of years ago on the podcast and he described perfectionism as a life spent leaning unhappily into a mediocre future <laughs> which i thought's a brilliant way to describe it because you are always going to want to go to the next thing but do you because then it's all right for us to what we do is messy isn't it like we, we are the opposite of question time you know we get into something we don't have the answer it feels messy and then we get the good bit by going into the mess and go well I'm drawn to that and I don't know what's going to be in there and the more it feels a bit uncomfortable the more I'm going to just get into that and that's sort of where I think the best comedians get their stuff they're willing to do something really you know Noel Fielding starting out or whoever it is they're willing to do something that's completely counter to what anyone waiting backstage or anyone sitting in the audience thinks should happen and they'll go further into it and then ultimately become you know, it will start fantastic, depending how you're looking at it. But there's something about that's quite unique to what we do. If you're sitting in a bank or, a, you know, working in an accountant, they're not going, you know, really try and find the genius here. Don't worry if you fuck up everyone's fat returns because you'll strike upon something. So not all parts of the world foster that, do they? In the oh, way no. that we I mean, have I it. Think that, that it, it, it depends what you're, you know, what you're wanting to do with the world, because, of course, a lot of people also want the same thing. They want to do exactly the same thing. It, it's the old thing about the, you know, on the working men's club circuit, where if there was a comic who was maybe a bit too original, you know, Les Dawson or someone like that, who, who was not really the same as the others, sometimes there would be a heckle of tell us one we know. Yeah. People wanted to hear the jokes yes. they knew. And in the same way, when you go, oh, let's go and see that weird theatre piece, and someone goes, there's an Eagles tribute band on down the road. Why don't we go and see them? Because they'll do Hotel California and there'll be an ersatz version of the Eagles. And that's what we need. And, and so I think also there is a lot of, I mean, I think in the world of neurodiversity, I think that's one of the things, which is uh, your mind is constantly going, why are we doing this? Why is that going on? Why are you saying that? Why, you know, and, and a lot of people I think are more comfortable and that's not a criticism because that's part of the balance is they're more comfortable to go, I know what I'm doing today. In fact, there's a lot of, you know, that I always think how lucky I am that every single day is some is something different. You know, I'm normally yeah. on the road the whole time. I meet different people. I go to different, I'm wandering around different towns, seeing different doors and different steeples and different graveyards and, you know, and different views. And, and that's going on all the time. And I need that. Whereas other people go, oh, God, I couldn't do that. I get this train and I get in and there's the pile of stuff. And I, and I can see how, yeah, we need ordered and disordered brains. Well, it's interesting with neurodiversity. My, my son is an autistic zookeeper, so I've had 26, 27 years of uh, being... Where's your zookeeper? Down at Paynton Zoo in Devon. Oh, I love Paynton Zoo. Oh, yeah, yeah I've been there many times. Well, yeah. there you are. Well, that's his thing. So, uh, yes, so he has an encyclopedic knowledge of most animals, particularly primates. I also have an encyclopedic knowledge, as you'll imagine, after 26 years of primates. But watching he, he with him, it's kind of either way. Like on the one hand, his world and his brain is so broad and so curious. And so to me, the apple couldn't have fallen further from the tree. I've learned more from my son in every way than anything else I've ever tried to learn. 
But on the other hand, there is that need to do things in a certain way and have things in a certain place. So it's that real sort of cheap by jowl living of routine and lists and comfort with what to me seems enormously uncomfortable. And, and, and I know they say when you've met one autistic kid, you've met one autistic kid. So all I'm talking about is my son, who is not representative of all autistic zookeepers, let alone all autistic humans. But it's interesting, isn't it? That sort of Venn diagram of, of what, what feels incredibly rigid versus what feels so loose it almost doesn't subscribe to what we think of as a societal norm. Well, that's the thing is societal norms are, uh, I think in our society, a lot of the English language kind of societies uh, and others as well, but they're the ones I know best, uh, I think they're they're far too limiting. And, uh, and, and the regime that a lot of people have to... It's interesting, I wonder if your son knows Andrea Dempsey. Uh, she used to be based at London Zoo. She's very well respected uh in terms of her work with primates but she, she's um, he will do then he what he did loads of work at london zoo from when he was really young he would find it wangle his way into oh, sure. things Definitely. yeah, yeah. andrea yeah. used to tour comedians but found that uh she it was much easier to look after monkeys oh, I'm so that sure. literally that's what she discovered was uh and she does amazing work and she's always though she was uh, um, i used to tell a story about when they in fact they got a gorilla from Paynton zoo there was a silverback that got transferred to london zoo and uh, I, I we were talking about it one night and she was saying how difficult this this particular gorilla was to interpret what they you know what they were going to do next and uh, and I said that must be very difficult. He said the most difficult thing is um, every time we go to clean out his bedding, we find new nuts and bolts, and we don't know where they're coming from. Which was <laughs> such a beautiful kind of like that idea of the great escape of a, of a silverback gorilla. I think my son looks after, among others, a group of three silver. There's well, three three gorillas, three male gorillas. They've got an all male group, and as I'm sure you know, they tend to hate. Uh, they much prefer female keepers. They're not a big fan of a male keeper, mm. and they particularly are not a big fan of a. You would not do well with them, Robin. They don't like a bearded man. That's a very unpopular thing. And my son started with that group with a mask on during uh, COVID, and then once the and thought he was doing really well and took the mask off, and they were like, "Well, you can fuck off with your beard." They didn't know until then. Mm -hmm. But is it um you said you're reading a lot about it? So I was yeah. just gonna mention on 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 the on the uh when uh the London Zoo used to do for the comics and stuff who'd done benefits for it, they'd say, Do you want to come for a kind of like tiger breakfast? Which means you get there before the zoo opened and get and, eaten for breakfast by a tiger. Yeah, yeah, and you uh, and you and you'd throw the comedian you hated most into the tiger enclosure and have a, <laughs> be a long list. Um, but there was, and of course, what always happened was most of the comedians didn't turn up because they really wanted to, but it was eight in the morning, it was too early. Yeah, that's the right but time. I, I was there with my son, Bill Bailey was there with his son, uh, I think Lucy Porter got there as well. And um, we were feeding the lions with uh, um, bits of, I think it was like you know, supermarket chicken or something like that, and uh, um. And um, the, the lion, the male lion was all fine until Bill Bailey went up. And I think it was because Bill, of course, has wilder hair. Yeah, he's got and mane. So he had more, more of a mane. Yes. And Bill was the one that they were at. So, so Bill is the closest to uh, an alpha male lion that we have on the comedy circuit, I think. 
Wow. Either that or one of those lions was done to get that place on Strictly and they were like, fuck you. Yeah. Getting on there, Bill. That was my spot. I have, um because I live very near London Zoo, so I'm lucky enough that I have um dogs and cats and stuff here. When I go away, there's always an endless supply of my son's mates who need a place to kip down near the zoo. So I get very easy animal sitting. I remember the first time um, a friend of his who's a lion keeper there was coming to stay and I was showing around the house. I was about to go in. I said, make sure, you know, you double lock this door and stuff. And she was like, yeah, no, with the lions, we tend to, you know, be quite good at the old double locking of the doors. I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, because I remember going the first time that when I when my son was about two and we went and fed the tigers. And then my wife looked really appalled when we got home. And then I had to explain, I went, there's still one set of bars between us. <laughs> So we weren't actually in with the tigers, but it's a really interesting thing that first time that you, oh man, I, yeah, I love all that stuff. I do as well. No, it's never, it never, and I go to him, I've seen, my son will tend to get the sort of behind the scenes version. So we'll end up sort of seeing bonobo sort of groups pre-dawn doing, well, what aren't bonobos doing pre-dawn? It's like sort of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's amazing to get that opportunity. So yes, I do get to see, and I've slept in some very strange places, Robin, because my son's like, oh, it's amazing. We can sleep in the rhino, back of the rhino house and we don't need to get a hotel. And I'm like, fantastic. Namaste, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. You said you were reading stuff around neurodiversity and autism. So what's 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 drawing? What's making you read that sort of stuff at the moment? Oh, it's, it's just it's the next book that I'm writing is, uh, um, which years ago started off as anxiety for everyone that was that was the one that I started writing about. I was actually writing another. I've written two books since I started that one. And then it became uh, at one point I was going to call it you're not shit because uh, it's one of the first things that I think people when they get uh, a diagnosis, that one of their biggest worries is that if it just turns out they're neurotypical and they're just shit. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it's the so worst diagnosis of all. Yeah. And then and but you're not shit. Apparently, the publisher looked at it and went, there will be some problems if any of booksellers thinking of putting that on the table. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm basically writing a, a reasonably person. I wrote a book when I'm a joke and so are you a while ago, which was kind of. Yeah, that's the book uh, I've been immersed in. Oh, that's the one yeah, that. Yeah. That's so, the one I've, so, and I, I don't know how I haven't read it before. Everything about it is exactly up my street. So, yes, I've romped through it in the space of a day and a half. Oh, good, good. Because it was one of I look back now and I don't think I don't think it's like the best piece of writing I've done in one. You know, because I think every time you write something new, hopefully you're always learning and you're you're finding different ways of. Uh, but I think it's the, the content one... is superb, though. You may not be allowed to agree with me, but it is. Well, I'm happy. The thing that makes me happy about it is I've met quite a lot of people who have found something very helpful in it uh sometimes people who've been going through quite bad times and i and that does make me very happy about it and i, I i'm i'm not shy of saying that but to, if you, you you know i've had people come up to me who who've been quite kind of quite near the end of the 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 tether and when they read some of the stuff about uh like suicide and things like that suicide ideation so and and then and the new book really is it it can be even more I mean two one it can be even more honest because I know my head a lot better than I did when I wrote that book that book also for me personally was incredibly useful because it was a book that led to me uh, I've told this story many times before so I apologise for repeating it but all the therapists that I talked to would always at the end of the conversation go I presume you're in therapy Robin and I'd say no and then they'd look aghast and, and so it led I tried you to that. therapy that book. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't work very well. I was rubbish at therapy. 
and because uh, I was always worried about my therapist and uh, I was hoping she was okay and that's did you curate your stuff because it's funny because we're so used to there's so many and I know your entire book is about that is the idea of all these different versions of ourselves and us being sort of hyper vigilant as, as people who do what we do and scanning the horizon and knowing how to get into a theatre and see the thing in the dark that no one can see and know it's there and play to that and it's a bit like that with a therapist isn't it? you've got this one audience member and it's quite hard to just switch off and realize that we're we're meant to my therapist always going so what are you feeling as you're telling me this as I tell a very nicely curated version of a trauma that's going on um so it's quite hard to actually just let that let that be I quite often ask my therapist if she's all right or I'll say I'm sorry this is the worst hour you're gonna have today or things like yeah, that yeah yeah and that means it's not kind of yeah that, that that's so so I we got as far as one day she put a pencil down and just went it just sounds exhausting being you and I thought well that that's as good as it's going to get I reckon and, lots of people might have said that to us before. <laughs> we don't need to pay but, but it's not uh, Now it's not, though. I mean, that's one of the things that's exciting about writing this book is um, since understanding my mind better, I, it means that there's a, a huge amount. I mean, a huge amount of my energy was uh, based around anxiety. So I would I would wait. And, and it seems to me now ridiculous. And some people listening to this might wait be going through this and not that there's a bit where you just say well that's just the way I am and I just have to get on with it and then there's a point where you might just go hang on a minute this is really short existence why not try and get rid of some of the things that are unnecessary if you see what I mean like because there is there will be necessary grief and sadness in our existence there will be things which are inescapable but I think for a lot of people with different forms of 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 anxiety and and kind of you know depressive inner voices and things like that that those are so because I, I i found i was at a, a what was it called the, the horror show fantastic exhibition at somerset house uh earlier this year and um i was with my wife and son and when we were sitting in the cafe i said to my wife i've just realized how many things i haven't experienced on the way here the, the anxiety i didn't experience in waking up the uh hypervigilance and worry on the train the what's going to go wrong here, what's going to go wrong there, what's going to, you know, because talking, you know, and I don't know if that's when you're dealing with anxiety, that bit where it is a a a tree of endless negative possibilities. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're seeing all the time. Mm-hmm. And now that I've predominantly dealt with that, uh, it means that I have even more energy just to look at the whole world. So I, I'm all, everything is, and it almost feels like a manic, but the best kind of manic phase. Cause you're just going, look at that, look at that. Oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, I've never noticed that's a weird wall, isn't it? And that's what it's like. You're manically mindful, which is a hell yeah. of a thing to pull off. Yeah. Which is so much better. And it means that all my, you know, and I, and I don't leave the stage always feeling that I could have done better or I let someone down there. I'd leave the stage going, uh, Oh, I put on a show and I was, uh, and as long as my mind is like in Eastbourne, I was a bit annoyed because I was a bit too tired to access everything that I needed. So I could still look at it critically and go, I think it could have been better, but I don't go, oh, it could have been. I just go, that could have been better. And I can look at it in, in a methodical way. And then other times I can come off stage and just go like all the way through Edinburgh. I've never had this at an Edinburgh Fringe before. For the whole run of Edinburgh, I was doing two shows a day. And uh, a, a couple of times I'd go, mm, I don't think that was as good as it could have been. But that was it. I was not wearing a hair shirt 
In fact, hair shirt sales in my area have really plummeted. Really? Uh, since with that. Yeah, yeah, I bet. The people fact, having made, to reinvent I feel quite comedians. bad for the tailor who was making so much money from the hair shirt sales because he's gone bankrupt. He's had to have closing down sale of hair shirts. Well, your win, his lose. And is, does, that mean, does that mean you're impervious to Steve Bennett now? Nothing Steve Bennett can say matters. Well, do you know what? I never really... I, I, I try and avoid reviews generally. And I used to not because I suppose because... If you have a level of self-loathing, then it's almost giving you a seal of approval for your disapproval of yourself. Yes, that's to true. To see a negative review, and and now again, I, I'm I'm not that you know in Edinburgh, and I, you know, I, from what I can gather from from my mate who kind of produced the shows, uh, they the, all the reviews were were positive, but it didn't matter. I mean, it, I'm glad. It, underneath it all, it was like finding out at the end, because I only really found out at the end. I was like, oh, that's good. Oh, good. But they weren't as important as the conversations that I had. You know, the, one of the best things that happened in the fact, and there were lots of lovely things in conversation I had with people, was um, I finished a show and there was a, 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 a guy waiting with his dad just by the stage, wanted to have a quick word, and I still had the melon drying off my fist from the earlier punching of the melon. And uh, and he was a young trans man, and he just said, um, "Can I just say I've never felt more seen than a, a, a comedy show than I did just then." And I thought, "Wow, I'm an old man, an old man with a grey beard, and uh, just talking about what's in his head." And that young man who's going to have had so many different battles to get where he's getting to now, and he saw something in it, and he saw something really positive in it, and that to me was like the most brilliant, you know, those. Those moments of having connection with a, with a disparate group of people uh, is is tremendously exciting. And all of this, the trouble is, we're so geared to believing that talking like this is somehow uh, whether it's self-aggrandizing, whether it's naive, whether it, you know, it, it's like the naivety of, of talking about love. You know, people, the neg negativity is seen as very clever, and uh, and 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 love and saying, oh. It was a really amazing thing. Yeah, but don't, don't probably really you'd rather be a millionaire playing some arenas, wouldn't you? I mean, that's one of the things that I found is I think after I did the uh, um, last year's tour, where they're doing these big tours with Brian Cox, where we play these huge places. And stuff yeah, that must about. be weird going from those arena tours with Infinite Monkey Cage to what you do as a solo, no matter how great you are as a solo comic and a solo act, the difference in sort of all sheer numbers, that must be a quite an adjustment, isn't it? As you go through that, living both those you lives. No, I don't feel the adjust adjustment. But it is, and I love doing the, you know, I have, it's really made me focus on the fact that what I love doing most is just turning up to odd venues. And, you know, especially like a lot of the gigs I do are free. So it means there's no restriction on people coming. So you you are playing to such a broad group of, of, of people, age-wise and professional and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and if anything, the arena the arena gig doesn't really feel like a gig because I'm not on for long enough for it to feel like a gig. So I'll be chatting to the, the stage manager at the side of the stage, and then I'll hear Brian say, my friend Robert Ince. And I'll leap on, and I'll show off for a while, and then I'll disappear, and then I'll show off again a bit later. And um, But that's what I've really realised is, and I think it's really helped me focus on, uh, I, I wrote about this in the big issue recently, about the uh, what I consider to be, the, I'm, in, I'm in the Goldilocks zone of uh, earnings, which is, I earn enough to not be overly worried about bills. And that means that I have freedom because I don't have to take gigs or work that I don't want to do. And also 
I'm not thinking it would be great to earn this amount more next year. As long as I can keep earning enough that my wife and my son are happy and we are safe, that's the great. And then you might earn more money and you become rich. And when you become rich, you go to fancy restaurants and all your friends are rich because rich people hang out with rich people because if they hang out, you know what I mean? There's all of that different. And then you've created a new form of incarceration. Some people, you know, it's that bit where you go, how much, for, and, and to have freedom, most people don't. Most people wake up and they have to go and do a job. A lot of them don't like their job. They have to go and do that. Uh, I wake up and whether it's doing your podcast or chatting to Josie Long beforehand or the writing I'm going to do later on, all of them are things that I want to do. That's an incredible level of freedom to have. It is, and it's a certainly um, that golden cage, that idea of, as you may or may not know, I left a sort of kind of corporate life to, to become a comic quite late in life. And it is a golden cage. There's always the thing where you can just go, well, if I just do this for another two years, I don't have to work again. Or if I just do this, I can have that car. And I always lived like I didn't have much money. I think because I always knew I was borrowing that status and that it never felt like me. I thought I'm in this thing and I'm really you know, I won't always be turning left in a plane because someone's paying for me to. I'll be on the back of a bus at some point by the broken toilet again. And then you live in a certain way. But it is, it is a, if, if that's the world you live in, I don't know if you, you know, when you do, a, I've done those um Soho, I'm sure you have those Soho house type gigs or maybe you don't do that, but we're gone out to like the Soho farmhouse because I'm a turn that night and they give you the day there. And I remember in lockdown going to one of those or sort of end of lockdown when we were vaguely allowed to be gigging and thinking, these people have all lived a, they've all sort of managed to buy their way out of it being quite as, as it was for us because they've all somehow been allowed to be here doing things on their bicycles and having a sneaky spa treatment and they've swerved it and they're not aware of what we're It's like a whole bubble of, mm. it just felt so odd. But I don't know if that's real privilege or not because then you're, what are you connecting? I don't know what the substance of your life would be then. I mean, who am I to say? They're not all the same person, but there's something you, you can buy yourself out of a human experience, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I... I found it, I read Alan Rickman's diaries, which have, have some beautiful lines in them. I mean, incredible summaries of kind of human behaviour at times. But also I think he just always seems to be in another posh restaurant with a bunch of, you know, other actors and famous people. It's like Jay Rayner's podcast. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> I I still like, you know, getting to Taunton and realising that I've got to now take a bus to get to some village. Yeah, no, I'm, I agree. And I'm, yeah. and I'm quite content to, you know, sit in the vestibule on the train as long as there's enough space for me to take out a book and read or do a bit of writing and I sit there having a cup of tea in the vegetable bit and that's all fine. And then getting on the bus and none of it, lots of things. It's a bit like with money. I think one of the interesting, sometimes when I'm doing gigs for free and I have to maybe get up really early to get to Hull or something like that. And I go, why am I doing this? And then I think I'm doing it because I can. And, but we're so trained to believe that, it must always be. I, I was chatting with, you know, you know, Joanne Harris, who wrote yeah. uh, Chocolate, right? Yeah. And we were talking about the odd thing when people have a fixed fee that they cost this amount in the arts world, because, well, it depends who's asking you. And if you go, well, this is how much I'm worth. Well, you've removed all that worth of mm -hmm. being able to say yes to a gig for a hundred quid. Because I always do that. If, if someone asks me, they say, oh, can you come and do, you know that show you were doing in Edinburgh? Can you come and do it? We're doing a festival. How much do you cost? And I I normally go, this is the least I've been paid for it, which is always zero. And this is the most I've been paid for mm -hmm. it. What you got? 
And if they come back and they go, well, actually, we really haven't got a budget. Can we do it for train fare or whatever? I'll, I'll, you know, I'll probably more than likely go, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do that. Well, they say art um, is either hugely underpaid or hugely overpaid, don't they? And it is, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a fun, it is a funny business. And do you, um, in terms of, um, of the sort of merging of kind of left and right brain and science and comedy, and obviously that is your your thing, you know, and cosmic shambles and the sort of amalgamation of all those different worlds, and that's kind of the area of fascination, not just for you, but for the people who follow you and love you. But that's that sort of flies in the face of the idea that lots of people in the world are like, well, I'm not creative or I'm this or I can't do maths and I'm that, you know, th this idea and, and the education system doesn't help that, does it? It sort of put, put, puts you down as well. You're artistic, you're this, don't do that. That's not for you. But do, do you, but your whole world is in that is sort of breaking the rule of, well, I'm meant to sort of pick a pick a right brain, left brain course. Or if I'm this creative person, I shouldn't be a science person. But for you, it's all just a melting pot where that's all allowed. But did it kind of start like that or has it emerged as that as an adult? No, it emerged like that. I mean, I think it was like that. I think like a lot of people pre-teenage, that's what the world is. And you went to quite uh, traditional schools, didn't you? So yeah, it's not like went, they were I saying, went, you know, go yeah, crazy, was, fill your fill your boots with creative urges. Didn't didn't like school, not my thing. And uh, and I think anyone who's got, you know, if if you can't regiment your brain enough, any any system like that will be difficult. Whatever School's it is, so but, hard. My, I used to sit with my son when he really struggled through school, as you'll imagine, and we would watch people like Billy Connolly on the telly. And my my favourite thing with him was we we would pick people we loved and think what they would have said about their school days. And invariably we knew they'd have said their school days were shit and they hated it. And I used to sort of think, hopefully that's given him an idea that these amazing people he loves and adores out there are not the ones that are having an easy time of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I mean, I, I, I basically see I, I think everything is kind of uh, in biology in our mind is kind of a spectrum, really. Not just, you know, we, we use it for specific things, but actually, you know, every it, the blurred lines, the, the blurred lines of the uh, which reminds me once I remember hearing uh, Grace Petrie uh, overheard someone saying that they were really surprised that she worked with me. You, you know, Grace, mm -hmm. fantastic, you know, fantastic folk singer and fantastic activist. And uh, and this person was going, yeah, no, I'm really amazed that she's working with Robin. And then it turned out they'd confused me for Robin Thicke, the uh, misogynist uh, um, singer. I think talking um, of spectrums, you and Robin Thicke are probably yeah. at either end of the Robin spectrum. I've never been a deliberate tune thief. But no, I, I so so I think that's, that is, and, and I think actually looking at a lot of the stuff that goes on about gender now is a really useful thing to then look at all the things in our mind, which is that that spectrum, that idea that, that the world is a lot of the social world attempts to define it as yes no either or man woman whatever and in the same way with the way that we think and the way that we approach the world and and that bit like anytime you see a book go this book will tell you how to think it, it well already there's a huge number of people who shouldn't be bothering to read that book because it's going to try and beat them into the the shape that you're meant to be and so I think, yeah, I, I I think that thing of going, I mean, most of the shows that I do, I hope have some level of encouragement for people to go and create or approach ideas. And, you know, like when I did the show Weapons of Empathy, one thing that I would nearly always say to the audience was, right, everyone there, you know, it, 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 just right thing. Don't worry about being a novelist or 
poet, whatever it is, just write things down, leave things behind, write in your books, leave notes, leave, you know, that the writing is. Uh, and, and when someone sits down to write, like I, as, as I found writing, I'm a joke and so are you. You know, there are things that I look back now and I think this was an idea that was in my head since I was three years old, 10 years old, 20 years old, whatever. If you put it on paper, immediately it changes or you put it on a screen. The moment it becomes a series of words that exist in the real world, not merely your head, not that your head isn't a real world, but you know what I mean? Then you can interrogate it and then it becomes something different. And then you look at a story, like when I wrote about the car crash that I was in when I was three years old, the car crash that I thought was my fault. And suddenly it was th things that were blindingly obvious finally became blindingly obvious. Like but it what? required placing them on a page. Like what? Well, the fact that so much of my worry about the happiness of people, my anxiety came from the fact that just before my third birthday, I thought I'd caused a car crash, which had led to my mum being in a coma and then suffering for the rest of her life. So uh, on different levels. Um, and so, that's because you were reaching for a toy and trying to get I was a toy. Because yeah. I thought, because... When you're little, you think that you control more of the world than you do in a negative way. You know, if, if if you pick up a mug and something falls over across the room, you think, oh, did I do that? Was that am I this, you know? And so I, I carried that. And then as I wrote about it and then thought about it more and more, and then I then I'd that was the only bit of the book that I would I'd very rarely read from a book when I'm doing shows about any books that I've I've, I've written. Um and uh and I would read from that bit. And then I'd hear other people coming up to me and they would have stories of something they'd done as a child or some blame that they carried with them, even though their rational brain would know full well now that that was nothing to do with it. The brain of their three, five year old, nine year old, 12 year old experience, whatever it was, still carried all of that pruning, that neural pruning that had gone on at that point of try not to create havoc try not to destroy things try not to are they okay are you okay are you okay are you okay is you okay you know, all of that stuff and then and then that, that also helped teach me about the level of masking like there was one period of time i can't remember if i put it in the new volume of the, of the book i might have added because i added a couple of essays and stuff about the more you realize the disparity between who people think you are and who you believe you are so I had a little run of Lisa Blower, who's a fantastic author. I don't know if you've come mm -hmm. across her. I, yes, uh, I have. You know, and she's great. And, and she was also uh, managing or, or stage managing the, the literary stage at a festival. And she she said to me, she went, oh, God, Robin, I really wish I was as confident as you watching the way you just go up to people and talk to people. And I thought, oh, yeah, but she doesn't know that after every single conversation and normally during every single conversation, I'm going, why the hell are you doing this? This person must think you're absolutely mad. Oh, my God. Why have you just said that? That's going to be entirely misinterpreted, isn't it? Oh, my God. Did, did that actually sound like it was a sexual joke? It wasn't a sexual joke. Oh, God. So that was going on the whole time. And this but, is when you were in anxiety as opposed to now managing anxiety yeah, differently. So that, that, and that was every episode of The Infinite Monkey Cage until about a year and a half ago. If you could have heard my mind, it was going, oh, that, that wasn't good enough. Why do you say that? Oh, God, you interrupted Brian Cox at that point. Everyone's going to be really angry with you now. Because they're going to, why can't we listen to Brian Cox? He's really brilliant. And that bloke's just really annoying. But yeah, that was going Even on. Even after 20 plus series, because you're, you've yeah, done, yeah. New, yeah. And yeah, it's so, that... so it was it's that idea of um and you, and you talk about it and you're in I'm a joke and so are you but that idea of comparing your outsides with other people's ins uh, your insides with other people's outsides and the fact that we're yeah. there knowing all the mess 
and the amount of effort it takes to look effortless and why we as comics and we as performers, you know, the one pure bit of the day is often the bit on stage, you know, that's the, because we turn up and that's all we're yeah. doing is that. And there's a purity to that, that I can't, I don't manage to attain pretty much anywhere else. Sometimes, you know, amazing music will do that or yeah. amazing moments of intimacy will do that. Or when you lose yourself laughing, someone else doing that. But it's really hard to just have a bloody holiday from yourself, isn't it? Yeah. And then, but once you then, if you can get to a point of being happy or content, I mean, I think mine is generally happy. I mean, considering that this this year's had quite a few major things happen in it, and yet equally has been a year that's been very happy in another so way. So are you happy? Would you would you apply that adjective to yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Maybe that's the word. Mm. It's like kind of I I do every now and again I will suddenly get a little moment of a reminder of the anxiety that used to be through all my waking hours, and I go, wow. When that? was the last time that happened? Well, today actually I was slightly because I'd only just noticed that this this party that you're going to um, is a daytime one. I'd totally forgotten because I've not been for years, and. And now, I, and then I did start thinking: Do I want to go? Do I need because uh, and socialising? And I just had a little bit, a tiny little uh, germ of. And I had that the other day when I was watching a piece of of, of theatre where I was sitting. I wasn't quite kind of and, but it was. But before, like, if I'd known I was going to the theatre in a month's time, I would have checked where the seat was. I would now be worrying about the fact that what if when the play starts instantaneously, I suddenly go, oh, I need to go to the loo and I've got to mm. ask that person to get, I have to go through all of that. I very much relate now, to this. Now, every now and again, I might get it almost in the moment. Oh, what if? But those what ifs used to be there for months on end. You know, if I wasn't anxious about something that was immediately going to happen, I would start to get anxious about, oh, God, in nine months time, I'm going to Brisbane and and I'd worry about getting up early for the cab and blah, 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 blah. So, so you so, were creating an amygdala hijack that lasted forever with no respite. Yeah. And yeah. is it and I know this is a, this would be a whole podcast in its own right. And I do want to ask you the three questions I ask everyone. But in terms of that, that ridding yourself of anxiety, or ridding yourself of, I guess it's it's that sounds kind of combative, doesn't it? We don't want to sort of fight with those bits of ourselves because that sort of demonizes it. It's not, it's not how it is. But however you've integrated that into a way where you are not laden with this burden of anxiety. I know this is an enormous topic, but if you had to sort of sum up the biggest thing that's changed in that regard and how you've got there then, because that's that's got to be like the golden egg for so many people. Well, I think, you know, the first thing was, uh, you know, a stranger getting in contact with me uh, who does a lot of studies in neurodiversity and saying, in fact, I'm sitting because I'm, I'm at my sister's house at the moment and I'm sitting in exactly the place where he asked me questions for three hours. And at the end of the three hours said, you have a very kind of ADHD way of thinking. That is every single answer you give. And I remember and I, I've never found the words to explain it. The best I can always come up with is it's as if the world has been a, a very all these different disparate shapes and at the point of those words suddenly it becomes a perfect game of tetris and just drops into a square and that's it and so that moment of the first thing that i realized after 30 years as a performer was all of those times where again that disparity between what you had in your head and what you deliver was like 
hang on, people haven't been coming back to my tour shows year after year, waiting for one of them to be linear. And oh, yet again, he didn't do a linear show, and suddenly it disappeared. That's one. That's the, in a professional set. That's the first thing that disappeared. Was hang on a minute, it's fine. Why have I always beaten myself up about the fact that the disparity between what I imagined as I sat on the train the show was going to be and then what actually happened? So that was a, an enormous kind of change. It didn't, I, I, it, that wasn't the, you know, the real big change was not being scared of, of approaching a doctor and, and wanting a prescription for um, anti-anxiety uh, medication. And, and, but those two things, yeah, well, there's three things. Right? The three things are writing that book, putting that, and, and again, I would say to anyone, write, you know, those, those things that are pestering you most, those things that keep coming back to haunt you, write them down write them into a story. It's a bit like, I talked about this in one show once about when my mum died, uh, the day before she died, we were doing an infinite monkey cage. I hadn't, we didn't think, we didn't know she was going to die so soon. Suddenly she, she was ill. No one really knew what was going on. And um, that night where I got some calls saying, oh, it looks like mum's actually getting much worse. And I was then immediately like, oh dear, I can't really pull out doing the show because everyone's done lots of organisation. And of course you can, but I didn't. And then just before uh, going on, in fact, I wrote about this from the book. Um, I think I did anyway. <laughs> uh, I suddenly got a terrible attack of diarrhea, uh, and I and my belief is uh, this is you know not 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 scientific, but that when you're going through that level of trauma, that much of which is disguised from everyone, your body basically goes. You have a choice. You can continue. Your brain can work and function to record a radio show, but that will mean that we can't control your stomach and everything else that lies below. It's you have the a ultimate choice. price paid for yeah. Do you want really one shitting so, yourself at the, uh, yeah. uh, the so infinite I monkey cage? Top myself up with emodium, and uh, and then the thing that I was happy about that weird situation later on was. This means that day is actually becomes a story. There's a story that I can tell on stage, which is funny and silly, but attached to a great sadness. But it's a story. So by being a story, you the moment you can turn something into a story, you can look at it and you can hold it. It's not just grief. It's grief with a story. And when grief has a story to it, as well, I mean, they, it always does. But if you can turn it into, if you can feel, and I think that's the power that sometimes happens when both of us are on stage, is we can turn something into a story. It's, it's what Hannah Gadsby talked about a bit, where, you know, when when she did Nanette and she talked about the fact that she would tell the story until the punchline, mm. but not necessarily then the sadness. So she talks about the guy mm. who ended up attacking her, but she never used to tell the bit that the guy then attacked her. She would stop at the bit that could be a punchline. And I think that's one of the things that then starts to happen in, in performance where you go, I'm going to tell the whole story, not just the punchline. I'm going to tell the rest of it as well. Um, sorry, I'm going all over the shop, but it is. Uh, so, yeah, that was so it was writing the book. It was uh, it was uh, Jamie, uh, the guy who got in contact with me talking about the ADHD thing. And uh, and then it was deciding that it was OK. Take, and that, that's stretched over about five years. But it's in particular in in one year. That was when. And, and it was remarkable. I mean, the differences in in my life of. It's what, what I was talking to Josie earlier today is like, I've just got all this energy. How is it for best. your wife and son? Since Because they've seen you go through all of those changes. Then that's a hell of a change from, from so Except, your wife as she met you and as you are now. Well, the different, the interesting thing is 
a lot of me, like I was chatting to my friend Joe, who I first met. Uh, I saw a tap dancing in a show uh, about uh, 20 years ago in Edinburgh. And I went up to her immediately. I'd never met her. I said, I really enjoyed your tap dancing. Uh, I currently do a show where I'm reading out from Mills and Boom books. And uh, uh, I think that would be really enhanced by you tap dancing some of the bits. Would you uh, like to come do that show? And she said, yes. So, and even that was a clue itself. One should always say yes to such a request. And And we've stayed friends for years and her life has changed a great deal in terms of really kind of finding happiness and and we both said the odd thing is on the exterior both our, our relationship hasn't changed and the way we but we also know that both of us ha are much happier so we still react and interact and i think that's the same with like my son's seen so many of my shows in fact someone once asked me after i'm a joke came out someone said don't you worry because you've written about suicide ideation don't you worry how that would affect your son and I don't, and I hope I'm right in saying this, is I'm glad that he knows that his dad talks openly about these I things. I agree. I'd worry more if he didn't know that. Yeah, I think that's, and, and it's, but, you know, you should worry about these things, but not necessarily sense it, you know, to think about them. And, but yeah, and, and then, then starting on the anti-anxiety. But so I think for them, uh, I think one thing that happens is when someone can understand that uh, sometimes when their partner is annoying, it's not out of laziness. It's it's like you know one of the most boring questions, but enlightening questions Jamie asked me was, uh, "Do you ever leave cupboard doors open?" And I said, "I don't believe I do, but my wife thinks I do." Tick, and the realization that it's oh, not I need someone Jamie going to, talk to, like, to my partner okay. urgently. I can't be bothered. <laughs> uh, uh, what it actually happening is halfway through closing the door, yeah, you're, it, so it's not thoughtlessness. It's 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 too many thoughts. So I think I think it helps the partner understand why it, it doesn't mean you should then suddenly go and now I'm never going to close the door so we still try and concentrate if anything I concentrate harder now because I'm aware I'm aware of going now you must put the door is definitely closed all that stuff but and also I think it helps a partner very often open up themselves about the way they see the world uh so in one way, like my wife never knew that I was anxious all the time. The the thing that I'd find most annoying, if the one thing that I could change looking back, it's nothing to do with career or anything like that, or any of those things that could have been better, it's that I realised that uh, when I would be angry with inanimate objects and angry with myself, that's one of the things that I've got a lot less of than I used to. I used to have a lot of, 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 of just anger about because I was so frustrated all the time. Or you know, or or experiencing IBS because we you know, which was a psychosomatic response to to my anxiety, and so that makes you angry as well because you're worried about whether there's you know all of that stuff, and and that's not there now. Does so, it? And yeah, it's a really well. I'm really interested hearing you say all of this. It feels very very apt that we're talking about this today. But does it in in that regard? Because it does, it, it, you know, a relationship, any relationship, your your intimate relationship, a colleague, whatever, with an audience member, it's 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 a dance of two parts, isn't it? So you've had all these changes and these kind of revelations and and this sort of Venn diagram, which met in the intersection of the three things that mean your anxieties transformed things for you. But then the people around you are dealing with a different thing, aren't they? So then their part yeah. of the dance changes too. Yeah, and it's the real like I would have. There was something that I wrote about where. Um, I'd done a 25 hour live show online just after lockdown with my friend Trent. And it was amazing. We had like Robert Smith from the cure on, we had um, a scientist from every single continent join us, all seven continents live. 
uh, we had astronauts, we had all this stuff. And um, and I had a rare moment of actually both Trent and I, who could be very self-critical at times, we both went, that went pretty well. And we were eating cereal and drinking wine at one in the afternoon because we've been up for 36 hours now. And then when I got home, everyone was like, hooray. And then within about five minutes, it was like, why'd you put the bag there? And of course, critical voices really, you know, you can't, I think for a lot of people with different forms in Europe, that it really, it sticks. It, it, it's mm-hmm. not just a minor thing. And that's like the emotional memory. And and I just crashed immediately. I was, I was uh, from that point on, I've kind of depressive thoughts for, you know, three months. I've set my alarm for five o'clock in the morning so I could get out of the house before anyone else woke up because I, you know, all of that stuff. And so also having an understanding that sometimes the, you know, the I think it's understanding the way that we hear each other's voices. And I mean this broadly for everyone. People hear a different tone. I mean, it's bad enough on, on the Internet where people can't get tone at all. Mm-hmm. But in, in, a, in our day to day life, you may say something which you believe sounds in one way and it is heard in another way. And that realization of the subjectivity of of how we're experiencing the world i think when one person in 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 a group is able to open up then it kind of starts to color add all a huge again it's the spectrum the spectrum of how we hear words the spectrum of what we believe people think and it's exact and it flies exactly in the face i don't know if you've read um the science of hate if you haven't i'd recommend it it's um oh, i have uh, got it matthew uh matthew yeah. williams yeah williamson it's i had him on the podcast it's brilliant and actually there's some not overlap because it sounds like one or the other of you is being derivative which you're not but there's an approach he takes to hate which is not dissimilar to your forensic dive into comedy and what it is that makes the psyche of a comedian and makes it he's got a similar thing of entering into the minds and what what, what you know where do you go from dislike to hate to act Action. and and it's fascinating but I, i'd really really recommend it but yes that idea there of the fact that we're so sort of polarized and by putting people out into a sort of you know they have to have gone so far down the line of sort of terrorism or whatever it is before anyone tries to engage in some sort of can we look at why you're doing this what are you doing what might an alternative be by then someone's already bombed someone or tried to and they're in an extreme rehabilitation situation because people aren't having the the conversations like that I'm sure you saw that flat earth documentary on um yeah Netflix but one of the things I most loved about that was instead of scientists ridiculing those people saying you know well we're, we're these people some of these might have been scientists you know but we're they've got further and further into a world of confirmation bias because we're not willing to have a dialogue so we sort of end up pushing things out into the edges rather than engaging with them you know in a way that might make them less extreme yeah if you were I used to get asked when I did the 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 sciencey book that I wrote I'd sometimes get asked how do you stop people being flat earthers how do you combat that and I said by the time they believe the earth is flat for more most people it may well be way too late because for some of those people it is it's uh, as you saw from that documentary you know it, it's a display of their unhappiness and they become rock stars in the world of believing the world is flat whereas yes. if they're in the world isn't they're not rock stars they're outliers i think you're you, you know you're, you're a very lucky person if you don't really need certainties uh beyond obviously this you know the, the immediate security of being able to sleep in a, in a, in a room to have your own space, you know, other, but the certainties the the psychological and philosophical certainties, like I always think that with, with like not believing in God is it doesn't really worry me. It's not, you know, there's a lot of people that I know 
uh, who do have that God-shaped hole. And what if, um, and I've realized that especially the older I get, the, the, the fewer um, certainties that I have. I'm, I'm, you know, and and the realization. Like I've read, have you have you ever had John Higgs on your show? I haven't. No. John's. But have you read any John? I haven't. I'm writing oh, it down. Great. He wrote a book called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, which is is absolutely brilliant. In which he describes wave particle duality uh, as it's like saying something is both a brick and a song. Right. He, which I just love. But he also he wrote a book about why the KLF burnt a million pounds. Uh, well, I've got an ex-boyfriend wrote... who was the journalist who was there when that happened. There you go. Oh, well, he, he will have undoubtedly been interviewed then by, by John. Will. John John's yeah. John's book is fantastic. OK, I'm and, in. That's and my what you'll like about it is book. because you've already got one of the connections is while you're reading the book, there's connections everywhere. You know, it's like this. this so. so when I didn't know John and I'd mentioned on uh, Twitter that I, I couldn't find a Robert Anton Wilson book that I knew I had that I wanted to read. And he just replied to the tweet and he said, oh, I've seen some of the things you're interested in. I think you'd like my book about the KLF. Can I send you a copy? He said, I'd love to read it. So the, I was then on tour. And then uh, the last thing I did on the way back tour was stop off in Northampton and meet up with uh, the, the writer Alan Moore for lunch. Mm -hmm. And we went to the church where he was christened and we had a little look around there. And then I got home and there was the book on the mat. And I opened the book and I opened it at random. And the first page was a page with Alan Moore on it. And uh, so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've just seen Alan today. And then I went to Brighton a few days later. And out in, in Wax Factor, in the window of Wax Factor, there was a book about how ufos fly written in the 1950s an engineer has said this is how ufos work flying saucers work and i bought the book and i put a picture up online and then john higgs went oh i saw that in the window i live in brighton i was going to go back and get it i'm glad you got it right so I was like, oh, that's interesting and then i went on stage that night and afterwards uh someone came backstage and said oh can i bring my friend backstage i think she's the only scientist in the audience tonight who was also on top of the pops she came backstage i said why were you on top of the pops she said i used to be a backing singer with a KL so it does this thing so what when do you you're... make of that sort of synchronicity then what does your what does your science or your creative brain make of that i think that there are connections everywhere they go in they're invisible if like this this is my favorite one that's happened this year was i uh in in the weapons of empathy show i always had a stack of books a lot of them i never got to in manchester a couple of months ago i've, I've had this book for ages a tribute to ian charleston the actor who was in chariots of fire and all those things and 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 who was probably the first well-known personality in the uk to um to die from aids and I kept meaning to read this bit from, from this tribute book of him. And finally in Manchester that night, I was like, oh, just do it. I don't know how people are going to receive this bit, but I want to read this bit because it's very beautiful and it's very sad. And uh, and I read this piece about Ian Charlson that had been written by a friend of mine. And afterwards, I'm at the bar and this woman comes up to me and said, oh, it's really nice that you read that bit about Ian Charlson because I was his nurse in his last few days in the hospice. Now, I've put off for over a hundred shows reading that, but that night I read and and I'd almost told a story about Denim Elliot for a different thing altogether, but not going. And she went, I also looked after Denim Elliot. I was like, oh my, oh my God. God, if I'd done that, that would have been. But it's that beautiful thing of the more stories and the more engaged that you are with the world, the more coincidences you'll have every day. That's true. Well, I think if you're because not, if you're it, sitting on your sofa um, every night watching Coronation Street at the same time, not there's anything wrong with that, but it's less likely that serendipity yeah. will throw things into your lap. So I think that's the thing is that they are everywhere. And that makes it really exciting. That idea of synchronicity, which I think is coincidence probably, 
is but it's very exciting to know that that everywhere that you're walking you are walking through all of these invisible connections that will become visible when you suddenly meet someone like when you were saying in margate there might be someone who tells you a story and two days later you're somewhere totally different you might be in aberdeen or whatever and that story somehow there's a connection to that story and so that web that that particular little kind of you know that 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 string that that thread is all the way now between margate and aberdeen that bit you've carried there with you and you're doing that as you're carrying those stories around you're making the web well, I live for that thread and I live in that thread. I absolutely love that. And I think I grew up with a, with a dad and a grandma who both loved that too. Namaste, what would you pick, Robin, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? Um, well, it probably was uh, writing... I always say it was writing about the car accident I was in just before I was three years old. It was not the it's not the single it's not like a single moment but it's a moment which i know that that was one of the main keys to leading to a far happier and better life so interesting to hear you say that because that's very clear in the book but the way you bring it in in the book is almost not apologetic but kind of like look i'm not i'm not hitting my wagon to the star of trauma i'm not asking for sympathy yeah. i'm not trying to be dramatic here but i want to write about this so you sort of bring it in in a way that is kind of very underplaying of quite the significance it well had to I tried to edit it yeah. out I, I didn't want to put it in because so I it thought, feels a bit like that even now that it's sort of in there even though it's had such a massive life-changing effect on you writing it do you think the writing it was more important than the publishing it then yeah mm. yeah I think it's it's in the same way I think I hope you've had those moments you know when on stage you suddenly say something you didn't necessarily know you were going to say a story comes out and now it's been said out aloud it you know it's again it's that thing of saying things out aloud and sometimes very often I think the easiest way that people can first say something out aloud is just by writing it on a paper and they've said it out aloud to themselves because mm. you're not saying it out loud to yourself when it's a thought and that bit sometimes when you stand on stage and maybe someone comes up to you afterwards and, and it, you, again you found a little connection there someone see it's like there was a poem that I wrote shortly after the ADHD thing which was about kind of the experience of the light of stars and I wrote it on the way to Beautiful Days Fest, where it just came to me. It was like, came out in one fell swoop. And I thought, I've got to make myself do it tonight because I don't know if it's shit or not. Um, so just do it. And I did it. And then it was when I came off, because I was like, I don't know what that was like, that poem. A, a woman came up to me in tears and she'd seen all the things that I didn't know were in the poem that must have been in the poem because they were what, what was going on in my life for those three days. And and again, those like we were saying before, those moments that that moment of risk is so much more exciting than someone who knows exactly what they're going to say every single night. Well, it's the ultimate thing in science, isn't it? Is once you've solved the problem, it becomes harder to solve the problem in a different way because the first solutions yeah. happens, which is which is why the best scientists never feel they've solved anything. I've had yeah. um, apropos of nothing. I don't know if you've read Anil Seth um, being. Oh yeah, I love Anil. Yeah, he's yeah. great. Yeah, I had him on the podcast recently, and I loved. And again, I was really interested. In some of the stuff in your book really made me think of some of the. My brother's also was a cognitive scientist for a long time um, at Sussex University, and had the opposing, entirely opposing view on consciousness to Anil Seth. So I was really interested to get him on the podcast, just having heard the other side of the coin for so many years. But that's a complete digression, uh, which means I should probably have an ADHD diagnosis too. What is your, um, what's your favourite joke, Robin? Oh, my favourite joke, my favourite joke at the moment is because I I, I told it in memory of, uh, of, of Barry Cryer from a pulpit 
in Bristol Cathedral uh, when we were doing a slapstick festival is a uh, 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 man goes to a bar and he looks across the bar. It's just a Thursday evening. And there's there's a woman across from the bar and she catches his eye and just some, there's a spark immediately. And then, then they just go up to each other and they just start chatting and uh, and they just fall head over heels in love almost instantaneously. And then they they go clubbing. They have an amazing night out. They go walking along the Thames in the dawn. It's just just the most fantastic. And at the end of that day, she says, should we get married? And he goes, yeah, let's get married. And they go off and they get married. And and he goes back to her house for the first time, and uh, and the next morning that that he wakes up, it's dawn, and he's just thinking, oh my goodness, how is my life? This is just the most amazing life. And he needs to go for a wee, so he goes to the bathroom, and then when he gets into the bathroom, he sees that there's a dead horse in the bath, and he says, darling, there's a dead horse in the bath, and she says, well, I never said I was tidy, and I just love that joke. I, uh, I I I think Barry said it was originally told him by Walter Matthau or someone like that. But uh, yeah, that that that's one of my favourites. My other favourite is uh, the one that ends with the punchline. Uh, that's funny. He's only done it twice. The first time he was sick. Second time his hat blew off. That's a very apt one as well. Anything with a hat at the moment. <laughs> and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening. What would it be? It, it is that um, if you've got thoughts in, you know, don't, don't hide uh, two things, you know, whether it's pain or love. If there's some something that you love, if there is, you know, I, I was thinking this listening to Aid Edmondson, you know, who who I think can be quite negative about his work and seem quite kind of. And I thought, oh, my God, all of this comes from him going to boarding school when he was eight years old and you learn to conceal your love because if you say you love something someone will knock it out of your hand and uh and go oh that thing's rubbish you know because so much of our culture is about things that are oh that's rubbish and i don't like this and that. so i would actually i'm gonna gonna turn yeah don't conceal the love that you have for people's work for people as they are for you know don't be scared about revealing uh that i don't necessarily mean you know in that way that you know i've fallen in love or whatever i mean that bit of just saying isn't that thing beautiful? Uh, I think that thing you made is wonderful. All of those things that the world is, is significantly improved when we are fearless about saying about things that we adore. Namaste, that was Robin Ince. We've put links in the show notes to Robin's books, live dates, the Cosmic Shambles Network and the other books and good stuff that we talked about in today's episode. And that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. Welcome back to our first one this year. We absolutely love doing this. Wonderful, wonderful Robin. Please, it sounds like I'm singing a Christmas camera. Wonderful, wonderful Robin. Please do remember to rate, review and recommend us. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to Jason Byrne. Yeah, I did tell my children, though, when they were born and we lit you up, I was shot in New York. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hanson for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, Motherfuckers. Namaste, Motherfuckers. Pod People. If you've ever been shot at in Sicily, 
Dined at Herb by the water's edge on the sun-drenched Isle of Capri. Done business on the strangest of Italian towns. Been banged up in Rome's infamous jail. Wept at a much-loved matriarch's funeral. And been marched out of St. Peter's by the Swiss Guard. If you've ever savoured the brilliance and diversity of Italian cuisine, been overwhelmed by their art and architecture, sold 10,000 rugby shirts to Italian fashion houses, and finally, grammatically escaped from using the infinitive and arrived at the conditional, then there is most certainly an intriguing tale to be told. Italia 77, a brand new podcast coming soon to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows.